Um, so like I mentioned, we are back in the book of Job. Thanks, Leighton. Um, so if you guys have your Bibles, um, please turn with me. I mean, that shouldn't be a problem, And I think, now. Uh, please turn with me to Job chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. And uh, initially, as you're turning there, uh, it, Job is right before the book of Psalms. Um, I was going to preach all 13 verses of chapter 2, but I decided to actually break it up uh, one, because I was running out of time, and then two, uh, I think primarily was, was because I wanted to actually spend, spend a bit more time on the latter verses of chapter two, where we actually consider what it means to help those who suffer. And uh, as we see later on in the book of Job, um, Job's friends don't do a great job of helping Job. Um, but the only time that they're, they're actually really helpful is when they actually don't speak, uh, which is actually what happens at the end of chapter two. And so um, I wanted to actually spend uh, another message on that, and uh, we'll the next time we come back, we actually don't have youth group next Friday, so mark that down in your calendars. Don't have youth group next Friday. But the following week, we're coming back, and then we'll jump right into chapter 2, verses uh, 11 to 13. But tonight, uh, we're looking at Job chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And if you're with there, um, I'm going to read what the author of Job writes. Um, if you are a careful listener and reader and attentive to the text, you'll find some uncanny similarities between this passage tonight and last week's passage that uh, Leighton had preached. And so this is what the author of Job writes. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, do you speak as one of the foolish women would speak? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is God's word. What was the, the hardest test that you took in your life, in your 15, 16, 17, 18 years of life? Maybe it was the, the one that you just took this past week. Maybe it was your driver's license test. Maybe it, was, maybe it wasn't the hardest, but the most persistent test for you is the ongoing relationships that happen underneath the roof of your parents' house. What was the hardest test that you had taken in your life? You know, one of the most nerve-wracking tests that I have taken ever was in seminary during preaching class, and I had to come up with a five-minute message on the spot. Um, I showed up for class, and my preaching professor told me and the five other students in class that we had to prepare and preach a message right then and there. Uh, we didn't have notes, just, just Bible, go. And I almost never sweat because I'm always, like, incredibly cold, but this was the first time I had ever broken out in a cold sweat. And after it was over, you could literally see through my white dress shirt, but, but I think for many of us, the hardest tests aren't necessarily the ones where uh, we're evaluated for a grade. Like it sucks to bomb a quiz or an exam, but we're, we get over it and move on. The hardest tests aren't necessarily the ones that test us intellectually, but the ones that test us 
relationally, emotionally, even physically. It's this annoying pastor who tests your, your desire to listen to him for another 45 minutes. It's this annoying classmate that tests your patience time and time again. It's this debilitating headache that tests your ability to get on with your day. It's this sudden loss of a friendship that tests your hope and trust in God. And we can go on and on about the things that test us throughout our day and our weeks. But this evening, we meet again a Job who not only had the worst day of his life last week, as we saw, but as we will see soon enough in tonight's message, has the hardest test of his life. I mean, dude just can't catch a break. And I don't know if you've noticed, probably not. Hopefully you did. But our passage in chapter 2 is eerily similar to Leighton's passage from last week with the exception of some changed wording, wording in the introduction of Job's wife, tonight's passage and last week's passage are almost identical. What's up with the repetition? The replaying of the events is intended to demonstrate that Job's test is actually not over. Last week's passage demonstrates how Job responds to the total destruction of his stuff But tonight's passage demonstrates how Job responds to the total destruction of himself. How does Job respond when he is utterly and totally destroyed? This was the testing of Job, and it was the hardest test of his life. And how Job responds to his testing, I think, will give us clues on how we ought to respond to ours. And so our key idea for tonight's message is two things that we need to know in the testing of our faith. The first is the most important, God in the testing of our faith. And secondly, responding to the testing of our faith. And so the first part is God in the testing of our faith. Take a look at verses one to the first half of verse three. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him, in all the, on, like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Stop there. Now, like I mentioned, just like last week's passage, the start of chapter 2 starts the same way. But again, why does God repeat this? Why the deja vu? In fact, you might even ask, why is this even here? Is God's memory just slipping? Well, it isn't that God's memory is slipping. The redundancy in God's question to the Satan isn't just a literary technique. God is proving something to the Satan. Have you ever had an I told you so moment? Like the moment when you told your friend that dating this girl wasn't a good idea or the moment when against your better judgment, your friend decides to jump over a seven-foot fence and somehow his shorts get caught on the top of the fence, but his weight and gravity pull him down while his shorts and underwear still hang from the top of the fence. Yes, it did happen. Thankfully, not to me. But the repetition of the first three verses in our passage serves as a holy, I told you so moment. God is absolutely gracious, wise, and good. There is no malice in God. But when someone like the Satan or anyone else is trying to prove God wrong, God will shut him down. Because there's a tinge of holy smugness that we hear in God's voice as he speaks to the Satan. 
It's almost like God is rubbing it in the Satan's face. When God says, have you considered my servant Job? It's not like the Satan doesn't know. I mean, he did it. The Satan literally attacked Job moments earlier, but it's like God saying, here's Job on earth, suffering, reeling from the losses of his family, his wealth, his belongings, almost everything, and yet Job is still worshiping and holding on to me. How you like them apples, Satan? What God is simply saying to the Satan is that God is right and that he is not. And we are all just flies on the wall, but what if, God, what if Job was somehow able to eavesdrop into the conversation that God was having with the Satan? To hear that God never doubted Job. To hear that God staked his glory on Job's piety. That God staked his glory that Job would pass the test. To hear from his Lord that Job was righteous. Job made it. Job passed the test. He did not sin. He did not curse me. He trusted me. Job worshipped when his life was falling apart. Imagine how Job would have felt had he heard these words. And so God asks Satan a second time if he has considered Job because Job has been proven right and therefore God has been proven right. And what we need to know in our trials, first of all, is that God is right. God is right, therefore means that God is never wrong. He has never rendered a wrong decision, taken the wrong path, let us down the wrong path, said the wrong thing, or acted the wrong way. In fact, he is not, he's never too late or too early, too loud or too soft, too fast or too slow. He has always been and always will be right. God is right. And God's rightness is the core foundation of why we can trust him. God's rightness is the core foundation of why we can trust him, even when our lives are falling apart. And I understand if you don't yet, if you can't yet, if you're not there yet, even God understands that. God understands it so well that he gave you 38 chapters of human musing on human misery so that you would know that you are not alone in your questions. 38 chapters means that we don't get an explanation on human pain, but that we get a God who is absolutely right in the midst of pain. And I think one of the reasons why the author of Job includes this section a second time is to reassure us that God, without a shadow of a doubt, knows exactly what he's doing. That in the midst of what seems like senseless, pointless, and even meaningless pain, suffering, or tragedy, God emphatically knows what he's doing. God staked his reputation in his wager with Satan because he knew Job would pass the test. God is absolutely right. And a God who is right means that this is a God who has never made a wrong step or move in your life when it seems like there were countless wrong steps and moves in your life. This is a God who never makes a mistake. Your life, your background, your circumstances, your difficulties, your struggles, what we need to know first are never a mistake. And I know at Lighthouse we know this, but I think I need to hammer it over again and again that they are not chance misfortune. Instead, we get a, a right God who can be trusted even when we have to bury our loved ones 
that we get a right God who can be trusted even when there is no cure or instant relief, that we get a right God who can be trusted though the darkness does not lift. We get a God who is right. Job's godliness is proof of God's glory. Job's trust in God is proof that God is worthy to be worshipped for no other reason than for himself. God is right, and that is good news. In fact, this is exactly what God says in the last half of verse 3. God says, He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. In other words, God never doubted for a moment that Job would sin against him. It's the reason why God can say that the Satan urged God to destroy Job for no reason whatsoever. In fact, God repeats what what Satan said back in chapter 1, verse 9. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Satan asks God, "Does, does Job fear God for no reason? That's the same phrase that God repurposes here in chapter 2, verse 3. And the point is that not only does Job fear God for no reason, but that Satan had no reason to destroy Job. God throws Satan's words back in his face. Satan wanted God to ruin him, to swallow him up, to kill him. But Job has been vindicated by God in every possible way. Case closed. But not yet. In fact, take a look at verses 4 to 5. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And Satan accuses that God hasn't truly challenged Job's piety yet. Because even though he has touched his belongings, he has not yet been given the authority to touch his body. And so Satan says, look, I got rid of all of his stuff, but he still has his self. I mean, what does Job ultimately care if his family, his servants, and wealth perish so long as he himself is unscathed? And so Satan is waging, again, that Job will curse God if God touches his body. And this is Job's final test. Job must now experience devastation and desolation, not just around him, but in his own person. And the question is, will Job still worship if God, if Job, rather, is brought to the brink of awful suffering and on the cusp of death itself? And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, will we? is if we are put in Job's situation, will we be able to worship if we are brought to the brink of awful suffering? Will we be able to worship God if God ultimately allows our bodies to be harmed? And how does God respond to to Satan's wager? Take a look at verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. For some wise, sovereign, and righteous reason, God allows Job to be afflicted by Satan. Does this surprise you? I think if it was any of us, we would have just said, let's just skip to the end. Let's not let this happen to Job. Let let Job just live his life. Isn't the devastation of everything else in his life already terrible enough as it is? This is what we would have said. But that is not what God says. In fact, God is the main actor here. 
God is the one who tells Satan what he can or can't do. God is the one who puts a limit on Satan's destruction, but it is ultimately God who is the one who allows Satan to sift Job like wheat. God is ultimately behind it all. Satan actually is ultimately not the issue. After chapter two, Satan is gone. God is the issue. Does this make you uncomfortable? That this is the same God who allows terrible suffering to fall upon a righteous man like Job. What is up with God? Why does God find it necessary to allow Satan to ruin Job? You see, our trouble with God isn't that he doesn't exist, but precisely because he does exist. It's because God exists that we suspect God of foul play. Is God actually for me or against me? Is this a malicious God or a good God? What kind of God would allow Satan to do his worst to this poor man? What kind of God would allow this to happen? What kind of God would decree from his throne the hardest test for the most blameless man who ever lived? And I've mentioned this before, I've said it again and again, but only a God who would be willing to do it to himself. The God who tests our faith became the subject of his own testing. God never asks us, as I've mentioned again and again, God never asks us to do something that he isn't willing to do himself. That has to be something that we remember in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering. God never, ever asks us to do something that he is not willing to do himself. God can decree to give us the hardest test of our lives, not just because he's God, but because he decreed it upon himself. God was not above the suffering that he gave to Job. Because God the Son, as God the man, endured the greatest trial he ever faced. He would be tempted and tried by Satan. God spared Job's life, but God did not spare Jesus' life. A God who would become a man for the distinct purpose of dying for sinners is, again, like I've mentioned, is not a safe God by any means or by any stretch of the imagination, but this is a good God. A God who does not remove our vulnerability, but enters into it. This means that Jesus is not always a solution to pain. He is often actually, if you think about it, the cause of it. To follow Jesus is to follow him into the pain, into the dark emotions, into the difficulty. We wrongly assume that people who find God always feel better, but it's actually typically the opposite. In fact, this is what George MacDonald writes. He says that the Son of God entered into and suffered unto death. Not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. Jesus absolutely deals with the sin problem and he deals with the pain problem, but that will be later. Jesus did not solve the pain problem now. So that whatever we face today is in conformity to what Jesus had suffered back then. 
And so don't you think that a God who authorizes our pain is also the same God who authorizes us to scream our indictments at God about our grief and hold him responsible for our tragedies? This is God. God can take it. God can take your doubts. If he's the friend of sinners, then he's also the friend of doubters. God isn't mad at you for your doubts. He wants us to have faith like a child. I mean, how often does a child with loving parents question her or his security in this world and the love of her parents? And from what I hear from some of you guys, pretty often, God can take it. He doesn't want our pious confession. He wants our brutal honesty. In fact, God takes it from Job for the next 29 chapters. God did not come in human flesh and die on a cross so that we could pretend with him, so that we can, so that we can play good little Christian with a God who not only ordains our grief, but is also intimately acquainted with them. When my mom dies, and that will be a day when I go toe-to-toe with God, I can at least say, this is not cruel chance. I can at least say, God, you took her from me. That sentence deserves to be unqualified because God desires that we be completely unqualified with him. That there are no asterisks in our prayers. I mean, consider Jacob wrestling with God back in Genesis. You think Jacob was playing nice with God, apologizing for stepping on his toes? Wrestling is not nice. You think the psalmists were playing nice with God when they were calling on God to rain fire and judgment on their enemies? Grief, disaster, and despair shouldn't wreck the integrity of our character, but it should cause us to be brutally honest with God about how we feel. God, this sucks. God, why did you do this? And God can take it, not just because he's God. God took it precisely because he was also a man named Jesus. God welcomes the tears. And he will also be the one who will wipe those tears away when he will set all things right. This is God and the testing of our faith. Secondly, secondly, responding to the test of our faith. Take a look at verses seven to eight. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And so Satan makes quick work and on God's permission, he strikes Job with loathsome sores all over his body. The sores are so comprehensive that there is no comfort zone in any part of his body. It's the reason why he uses a piece of broken clay to relieve himself, even if momentarily, of the perpetual discomfort that he experiences. Uh, you know, I follow the, the subreddit, sub, skincare addiction, and some, some of those photos of the acne on there look really painful. It's like bright skin, uh, bright, bright red, skin is throbbing. Job's is worse, okay? Here's a little WebMD of all that Job experiences. With the help of a commentator, some of the symptoms that he suffered that we see that Job says all throughout um, Job is that he suffered, that what he suffered included painful itchiness, disfiguration, sores that scab over, crack, ooze, and crack again, sores infected with worms, fever with chills, shriveling of the skin, 
swollen eyes from the crying and weeping, diarrhea, insomnia, choking, sharp pain coursing through his entire body. It's not that physical suffering is worse than emotional suffering. I think we can argue and make the case that it's the other way around. But there's something intimate, something inescapable about physical pain. There's not a moment that you can forget physical pain. You can drift off to sleep with emotional pain. You can have some respite from emotional pain, but physical pain isn't like that. A couple of years ago, my mom had a work-related injury where she slipped and fell on her hip because the cleaners didn't put a wet floor sign. And she still experiences constant nerve pain that that caused the entire right side of her body to shoot up with pain. The pain keeps her up at night. She has to walk with a walker. There's no respite from her pain despite the medication that she takes to keep it at bay. There's a brutality to physical pain. And this is the brutality that Job himself experiences. All of Job's person is completely invaded and with the exception of his own life, the last remaining remnant of Job's protective hedge is gone and stripped away. And so this really is the test now. Now we will see for sure whether Job loves God for his health or for no reason. And what we see in Job's humiliation of physical pain isn't only that it's physical, but that it's spiritual as well. Our illusion of godliness can be undone with just one toothache. Because the reality is that when our bodies give way, our wills typically do too. If habits of virtue like compassion, kindness, gentleness haven't worked their way into us, if they haven't seeped into our very selves, then sickness, pain, and even hunger exposes how how far we still have yet to grow. When I feel tired, exhausted, or even feverish, I find myself impatient with others. I'm I'm more cynical and judgmental. I'm mean and I care very little about others. Of course, exhaustion and tiredness never causes us to act sinfully, but it typically weakens our ability to act righteously. A lot of what appears as kindness or patience or holiness in our lives is helped by good health, energy, and simple pleasures. And when these are taken away, it's clear that I am not that kind or patient after all. It's just that I didn't have back pain. Yes, I'm getting old. But if we let it, our physical vulnerability, our pain, if we let it, our pain can show us who we are and teach us to cry out to God, sometimes in the moans and sometimes through even the vomiting. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who said these famous words in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In fact, the poet Scott Cairns shares the story of how through cancer, his father grew from a man prone to impatience with a considerable temper to someone who was remarkably calm, loving, and profoundly quiet a gentle man of prayer. His father died of cancer, but in a way, cancer saved his father's life. God never delights in sending cancer or canker sores 
but the historic church has always said that sickness, however uninvited, pain, however uninvited, suffering inflicted upon ourselves, however invited, can be purifying because God meets us in the brokenness of our bodies and puts, our, puts even that brokenness to good use. And I wonder if we might also meet this same grace in lesser crises. Because if cancer could save a life, can God also be found among the more mundane miseries of sprained ankles and stomach bugs? Can stubbed toes or hormonal acne and broken arms and even wrinkles tutor us and instruct us in humanity, humility, and even reality? We are frail. None of us are the sum of our achievements. All of us are creatures of dust who frankly stink, who swell and wear out and yet are deeply and utterly loved by God. This is how one author describes chronic pain in her life. Chronic pain has connected me with my body and its rhythms and limits in a way I would have never learned otherwise. It has taught me to live in my skin and bones with all the joy and sorrow that entails. I have had to take care of my body. I've also had to learn to receive the care of others, which in turn has taught me to sit with others in their pain without trying to solve it. My chronic migraines are an ordinary, sometimes weekly practice of sitting with God in literal darkness and pain. Have you ever sat with God in literal darkness and pain? This is what pain trains us to do. But she cautions this by saying, I have to be careful as I list these hidden blessings of chronic pain because if I'm honest, it doesn't quite make it all worth it. If I could trade a little more empathy, a little more virtue, or the mystery of suffering to have my migraines disappear, I would make that trade. But this is how she concludes. She says this, The Christian story dares us to believe that we don't get to choose our preferred crosses or even our resurrections. I can believe that it is good that I don't chart my life's path if I believe God himself is looking out for me in the midst of trouble. I mean, that's it, isn't it? That when we hurt and when we're in pain, isn't that what we want? A God who is simply looking out for us? Even when we ache, bruise, and hurt? And what this Christian story tells us is that we can believe that God is not only right, but good because God himself chose a way of suffering that none of us would ever choose. He himself took on flesh and felt pain and bled. Jesus took on a creaturely body of dust. No one gets it better than God. And it's God's intention to eventually eradicate pain from our world by bringing his world down to ours. Sickness and pain is not the way that it's supposed to be, and we don't have to pretend otherwise. But it's in pain and sickness that God meets us precisely when we have nothing to offer. It's in our most unimpressive states, in the blood, the snot, the vomit, the tears, in the brokenness of our bodies, that God heals, cares, and nurses us. In fact, what we need more right now than anything else, than the wellness of God in the midst of pain is the love of God 
in the midst of pain. Sometimes for many of us, feeling better has become more important than finding God. God's purpose for you isn't to find healing per se or feeling better. God's purpose is for you to find him. But for God to take something so miserable and vile as illness, brokenness, and disease, and to make any beauty out of it, we need more than just healing. We need his love. And in his love, God lets, lets nothing go to waste. And so how do you respond to your pain and trial? How does Job respond to his absolute desolation? Take a look finally at verses 9 to 10. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. The final test wasn't actually Job's afflictions. The true and final test is whether Job, in in light of all that has happened to him, will curse God and die. And what's most surprising is that it comes from the mouth of Job's wife. Augustine called Job's wife, the devil's assistant, while John Calvin called her Satan's tool. But I think that is a very uncharitable and unsympathetic reading of Job's wife. Job's wife may have unwittingly played into Satan's hand, but let's not forget for a moment that almost all that has happened to Job has also happened to Job's wife. Job and his wife shared an incredible life together. She too shared in Job's wealth, his abundance. She gave birth and mothered Job's children. She too had to bury and mourn all 10 of them after they died. And if your spouse's body was wasted away to the point of death, unable to eat, drink, sleep, with bloody sores on his eyelids, on every nook and cranny of their skin, if death seemed moments away, wouldn't you at least for a moment consider that the greatest relief that this person you love could have is death? that the greatest mercy isn't to preserve whatever life there is left, but to end it. And while wrongheaded and doing exactly what what Satan wanted Job to do, we can at least understand that while seeking to alleviate her husband's suffering and pain, at least if he cursed God, then at least it'll be over. Why keep loving God, she asks, if he keeps hurting you? I think all of us have asked this question at some point in our lives. And just a little application for you here is Job's wife was not a helpful influence in Job's life. And the question is, are we helpful influences when others suffer? Does your help bring someone closer to God or away from him? And what we see in Job's wife is a faith that is cracking. Job's wife stumbles over the test that Job has already passed. As sympathetic as we are to Job's wife, she sins where Job didn't. And Job has to correct her. They're not on the same page. Affliction is added to affliction when their marriage is not in sync. Take a look finally at verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job kindly corrects his wife and rather than calling her a fool, he says that what she has suggested is not worthy of her. Hers is the suggestion that you would expect from a fool. And you know, to be be called a fool today probably means nothing. It means, you know, dummy, silly, you're ignorant, whatever. 
But a fool in scripture is someone who doesn't believe in God. A fool is someone who denies God. Job is telling his wife that she is thinking like a non-Christian does. Like an unbeliever, as someone who lives as if God does not exist. And it is in this speech that Job is now provoked to say his ultimate line of acceptance. Shall we receive good from God? Goodness, blessing, children, food, family, money, friends, an iPhone, a good school, a good church, a beautiful place to live. Whatever it is in your life that it is, that is a blessing. Shall we recognize God, God's goodness in those things? And shall we not receive disaster from God as well? In the form of loss of family, wealth, health, friendships, loss of hair, time, wellness. The point is that we have to say the same thing. We have to say the same thing. If God gave it, then God can take it away. And if we thank God for the good, then we must also be ready to receive God, from God the bad. And the author of Job tells us finally that in this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job passed the test. And what we see immediately in Job's response is that is what pain and suffering can or can't do. Pain and suffering can touch your health. It can touch your body. It can touch your mind. It can touch your family. It can touch every part of you, but it can't touch your relationship with God. Pain and suffering did not touch Job's relationship with God. In fact, this is what Pastor Christopher Ash writes. When all that Job has is taken away from him, we may get an approximate or provisional demonstration that God is worthy of worship, but an approximate or provisional demonstration is not sufficient for the ultimate glory of God. In the end, it is necessary and right that this man should suffer personal and intimate attack upon himself so that we see absolutely and without doubt that God is worthy of worship. You know, when I married Megan, and when Megan married me, we both promised, pledged, and declared to one another before the witness of God and others that until death causes us to part, we would remain faithful to each other in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. And it's nice and assuring when you say it on the wedding day, because you say it on the best of days, when the whole day has been meticulously planned that, not, that nothing would go wrong. But what do those vows look like on the worst of days? What do those vows of commitment love and devotion look like when the other person, when Megan ages, no longer looks as nice as she once did on her wedding day, when the other person gets sick, or when some, something unforeseen happens. Wedding vows can't remain theoretical forever. And in the same way, our vows to God can't remain theoretical forever. Our claim to trusting God, our claim to following Jesus, our claim to believing him can't remain theoretical forever. Because it's easy to pledge our, li our life, our allegiance to God when life is going well, when nothing bad happens to you. But, only, but the only way you will ever grow up out of a merely theoretical faith, the only way you will ever grow up out of the borrowed faith of your parents into a reality with him is when God pushes you beyond the easier affirmations of love and faithfulness to him, particularly in harm and in loss. It brings a central issue home. Is God worth trusting, hoping, believing when you've lost your body, 
your health, your sanity, your emotional well-being, your everything. Your body may heal, but the experience of pain is irreversible. So let me ask you a question. Is God, is God worth it then? Is God enough when you have nothing else but him? I mean, I think at Lighthouse, we really have to put our money where our mouth is. We love saying that God is our greatest treasure. We love singing about it. But is he really though? Is God your greatest treasure when you descend into darkness, when your mind and body degenerate, when you have persistent thoughts of self-loathing and self-hatred? It's okay to say that he isn't your greatest treasure, but let's not pretend that he is. There's a deeper reason why God allows Job to lose everything. Committing ourselves to God, even in our deepest pain, does more than show the quality of our love for God. It seals and binds our relationship with God where God is shown and proven to be our all-exclusive worth. Our relationship with God takes on profound depth and authenticity when we engage in tear-stained and complaint-filled worship of God for no other reason than for God himself. Is he worthy? And what the response of Job tells us what the test of Job reveals is that he is. Because what Job's response points to is a true and better Job who entered entirely into our sadness, our sickness, our affliction, our weariness, our suffering, and even our death for us and for our salvation. And yet he lives and will set all things right, even in our mortal bodies. This is the test of faith. Is God worthy to be worshipped for who he is and for no other reason? And Job says he is. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, that is the challenge that all of us face. Whatever darkness descends upon our lives, whatever trial, pain, suffering, that is the test of faith to see if you truly are worthy of it all. And we know because of Jesus and through him that you are. That though you lead us into pain, that you have not left us alone in our pain, but you have stepped into it. And so, Father, I pray for these high schoolers here. I pray that more than anything else, that they, would, that they would know that you are with them in and through Jesus. And it is because of him that makes you worthy of it all. We thank you, Father. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.